And the reading is taken from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind and to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Thank you uh, so much, Dan. Do please uh, keep that uh, Bible uh, passage open. And hopefully a reminder should appear on the screen of where we are. Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your, um, your disposition, your personality, your attitude towards us in Jesus. And we pray that where we have lost or forgotten or stopped believing in that today, that you will, by your spirit, restore our faith and give us comfort. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are taking a three-week break from our study in the book of Acts that we've been doing over the last little while. We're coming back to the Acts of the Apostles after a little while to do this series called Recovering, because uh, we like at this time of year to pause and think about some more sort of topical things that are really relevant to where people's lives are right at this moment. And I think lots of us are in the process of recovering from pandemic life. There's still massive trauma obviously going on elsewhere in the world, but for us, life is beginning to return to something like the normality that we recognised. And so we're going to do a three-week series based on people's reflections to me of what it's like to be recovering. Maybe things we've forgotten that we need to remember or things that we're finding hard uh, to get our heads around again during this time. So uh, just to give you a flag up warning, you might hear me say something like, people are finding this or people are thinking this and think, oh, I said this in a conversation to him. Am I being like, you know, mysteriously quoted in the talk? You know, is he directing the sermon at me? Um, I'm only using examples that have come up several times in talking to people. So if you hear that and you recognise it, take it as a comfort. You aren't alone in feeling this way. As life restarts, busyness and stress kicks in as we're bombarded with bad news from other parts of the world. Life starting again, which I think we thought might just be full of euphoria and joy, is making lots of us feel overwhelmed and stressed. 
You know, there was euphoria. I remember the first Sunday we were able to all gather in here and sing together. It was amazing. But for lots of people, I think the euphoria is past and the complexity is back. I do want to say normality is back, actually, because we have actually all lived through the last two years and we've probably come through it deeply changed, even in ways we don't realise. Now, when I talk to people about this, one of the things people say is, oh, yes, yes, but there are people who've had it harder than me. That's true, that, you know, we can all think of someone who's suffered a bereavement through COVID or who's lost their job. Some terrible things have happened, have had to leave their country. But all of us have lived through it. We've missed things that matter. We've learned to withdraw and disengage from other people keep our lives private and closed. I think lots of people are finding high levels of stress around activities and relationships that we used to just find normal and joyful. And from the little I knew, that's all signs of trauma. I sense and hear, and honestly, I feel <laughs> that things that used to be normal are now very hard work. The expectations of others feel like pressure a well-meaning critique feels like an insult. Other people are also slow to do things we feel like we really are depending on them to do because they feel stressed and overwhelmed. And I do sense where there's a slight sort of tone it's potential to take with other people because you're feeling stressed and they're not performing the way you'd like them to perform because they're feeling stressed. It sort of ramps up this tone of stress and difficulty. Well, why persevere? Particularly, I think, in church life, why persevere? I think some people do feel like, you know, church and dealing with coming back to the normality of church and serving all of these things, it adds to the stress. Why persevere? Well, you're not going to be surprised by my answer. Any of us persevere at anything in life because of Jesus. Because we think Jesus is worth it. Other people are worth it because Jesus is worth it. We keep going with work, with relationships, with generosity to others. We do it because of Jesus. And so today we're going to think about recovering. We're going to think about recovering Jesus. Just remembering how great he is and how that helps us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're super welcome. I hope this will be interesting for you too. I'm basically just going to explain today why we think Jesus is really great. So if you're looking for five things to do from church today, we're not going to have that. We're just going to enjoy how good Jesus is towards us. And so we've had the reading from this book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book that writes about the deep brokenness and mess of the world without God, that people have rejected God. Uh, and how all the terrible things that have happened because of that. And in the bleak darkness of that world, Isaiah 42 introduces the bright, beautiful light of this character, the servant. And he is refreshing and joy-giving. I guess the invitation of Isaiah 52 is in this world of stress, of tension, of finding life too much, come and breathe different air. Breathe in Jesus. 
behind the mess of the world and the rise and fall of evil leaders. I mean, we are learning lots about that at the moment. Isaiah talks about that a lot. Breathe different air by looking at the different and truer reality. You know, sometimes I think we think that's how it works. Real life is out there and we step into a little sort of happy Christian fantasy when we're at church, but then we have to go back to quote unquote real life. The opposite is true. We're experiencing something more real, more fundamental to everything that we're going through when we look at Jesus. It's the rest that's an illusion. He's the reality. And the reality is so good. Let's spend a few minutes breathing that air together. First thing God says to do then about Jesus, chapter 42, verse 1, look at my servant. I love the way he says it, my servant whom I uphold. So God is saying, I deliberately hold Jesus, my servant, up so everybody can see him. No, I'm lifting him up for you to see. And why is God doing that, verse 42, uh, chapter 42, verse 1? Because I delight in him. We're touching something very profound here, very almost mysterious. You know, the servant here is not just a servant, someone who does something. The Lord of all, the God who claims to rule over every evil ruler of the world, that Lord has a relationship of delight and love with this figure, the servant. Like the joy of looking at a wedding photo. You know, a wedding photo of two people that you love? It's not your wedding. But you look at it and you think, wow, what a lovely picture of joy and light in the world. Or hearing two friends, lifelong friends, laughing together. Or seeing, as often happens at the end of church, a little child run to their dad and just how that makes you think, oh, there is good in the world. Well, actually, at the centre of everything, the God who rules over everything has that type of relationship with, of delight with his son, his servant. And so he says, I want you all to see how great he is. I delight in him. I want you to see too. It's like, um, I've talked about this before, when people have a baby and they take a photo of the baby into the hospital and then they're like, on their phone, look at my baby. And you're like, they all look pretty much the same babies, don't they? It's like, yeah, it's, you know, about this size and red. You know. <laughs> But, but what's really being expressed there is not there's something really remarkable about my baby. It's like, I delight in this one. That's what I'm sharing with you, my joy and delight. That's what you're being included in. Well, God does that here with his son. He says, I just love him. I delight in him. He's so brilliant. Come and share the joy. Remember I said church is about stepping into reality rather than stepping out of it. This is the amazing truth. At the heart of everything, of everything that is real, is a father taking joy in his son. The joy of God delighting in Jesus, that is at the heart of everything. And so Isaiah 42 is definitely saying, Jesus can be enough to delight and satisfy you. I love it. 
At the centre of the universe are these two beings with endless appreciation for each other. And one of them says to us, come, come and see with me how delightful he is. Well, what is it about Jesus that's so delightful to God? What is it, if this is not a weird thing to say, what does God like about Jesus? You know, we all delight in our children if we have them, but, you know, some of the time... What does Jesus do to provoke this endless delight and joy that God wants everybody to see? Well, I think this is amazing, verses 2 and 3. What God loves about Jesus is that Jesus knows how to deal tenderly with people who are barely hanging on. When God says, come and see my servant, I want everybody to see him. He's so brilliant, I want you all to look at him. Well, what's so good about him, God? The thing that I most delight in about him is that he knows how to look after people who are at the very end of what they can do. Now, just to be clear, we'll get to it in a minute. Jesus is strong and kind, as we've been singing. He will, Isaiah says, inevitably bring forth justice. So he's not weak and incapable. He's not offering tea and sympathy. He is going to bring a new creation. But the thing that is amazing, delightful to God the Father about him as he does that, is that he will do it without crushing anyone who's at their weakest. Jesus is going to bring a new world. But Jesus is going to do that not with swagger, not with strength. He's not going to do it by having the biggest army displaying his weapons. He's going to do it, Isaiah says, God says, by God's spirit. And look how modest and gentle Jesus is in verse 2. He doesn't even raise his voice. He doesn't cry or lift up his voice. We are being horribly introduced, I guess, for the first time for most of us on the news about what it actually means to try and invade and conquer a country. It is a noisy, messy, painful business. But Jesus is going to bring his good rule to all of creation without even raising his voice. The servant, Jesus, he is not here to yell at you. He is not here to assert himself over you. He really wants to step back from that. Now, This was all written before Jesus, the incarnate man, lived. But isn't it actually true about Jesus? He came and lived in a backwater and basically lived an almost anonymous life. He had no power or wealth or success. Sometimes Christians are excited by the fact that celebrities are Christian. Jesus was not excited by that. He didn't seek it. Every time he did something that would have brought celebrity, he said, could you not tell anyone about it, please? He doesn't use his power and influence and strength to slap down bad people and assert his rule. He walked dusty roads at the end of the earth in order to bring justice. 
Why did he do it that way? He is strong as well as kind. So why not just bring justice through strength? Well, because look who he is interested in helping. Verse 3, bruised reeds and stuttering candles. Why does Jesus come to us humbly without raising his voice? I think he knows what we can take. He knows our strength and weakness. He's willing to lower himself as low as it takes because that's what we need. I wonder if you've ever been given advice. I'm sure you have. And I'm sure you will uh, know that it is very hard to take advice from people who seem super great and successful. You know, if you come and you say, I really need help with this, and someone says to you, that is easy. I solved that years ago. You just need to do this and this and this and this. Even if they're right, you're not going to be open relationally to that person, are you? You will step away, and they've stepped away from you by doing that. Someone who really steps down as low as you says, this is hard. I'll walk this difficult, anonymous, heavy path with you. Well, you can open to that person. And that's what Jesus is like. He doesn't raise his voice. He humbled himself. Why? Because the people he wants to help are people who need help. I think sometimes we get this wrong. You know, it's not that God wants the best version of you. Clean yourself up. Become the best version of yourself. Then God can use you to do something good. Jesus knows the reality and comes to you right there where you are. How can I promise you that? about the God, the eternal Son of God who reigns forever. How can I promise you that? Because he didn't even raise his voice. He was a humble, human, non-impressive person. He comes without fanfare because he wants the stuttering candles and bruised reeds. I love both those pictures. A stuttering candle is basically pretty useless. You know, there's some life there, but not much. A bruised reed, it's like a leaf that's bent. It's just at the point of breaking. And those two pictures are there to say, whatever difficult thing you're carrying, Jesus will not break you. He will not harm you. Jesus will gather those who are injured, bruised reeds on the point of breaking, whose light is close to going out, almost despairing. People whose light is almost going out, who are bending over, close to breaking. The people who are doing a pretty feeble job of living up to everyone's expectations. Those are the people Jesus comes for. One of the things we did in our connect groups last year, we were thinking about sharing our faith with people. And one of the things the book we were reading said was like, can you just tell your favourite story about Jesus. So not like go to people and say, well, Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus lived eternally and he died for our sins. 
tell your actual favourite story about him, the story that captures your heart. Here's mine. There's a woman who's been bleeding her whole life. Because of that, she's an outcast. People are disgusted with her. She's alone and destitute. Of course, she lived in a country with no running water or sanitary products. She lived in total misery. And she creeps up behind Jesus and touches his cloak, and she's immediately healed. Well, Jesus starts saying, who touched me? Bring the person to the front who touched me. Who did that? And as you read this story, if you don't know the story, you think, okay, this could go either way. So he's going to say, how dare you touch the Son of God without asking? That's what you think is going to happen, isn't it? So she comes forward and throws herself at his feet. And he lifts her up in front of everybody and says, this woman is a model of true faith for everybody. Jesus exalts this abandoned, alone woman to an example that we, centuries later, should follow. You know, he will bring forth justice. Justice will happen. But for Jesus to bring forth justice, there is a part for us to play. But it's not helping him bring forth justice. We come to him with our regrets and our failures, our shames, our embarrassments, the harm we have done and the harm that's been done to us. That's what we bring. So take your feeble efforts. You're feeling overwhelmed by the world. Your disappointments, your wrongs, take them to Jesus. Because out of those, he makes a new world. That's the next thing we see. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now that word justice, we tend to think of it as legal rightness. You know, a judge sitting in a bench and buying a hammer and saying, go off to jail or you're free. Jesus will one day make everything legally right. Every unforgiven wrong, everybody who thinks they got away with it, every evil dictator will someday be brought to justice. Jesus will do that. That is one of the things he's saying. But the word justice means more than that here. It speaks of beauty and rightness of everything being the way it was created to be. It speaks of all things being remade into the glory that they should have had. This word is used when they're describing in in the Bible, uh, building the temple and making it beautiful before God. This same word, it will be just, it will be right, it will be perfect. That's the word that's being used. And Isaiah is promising, God is promising that a new creation is coming with Jesus in charge. And this is amazing. Everything will be the way that the one who loves bruise reads, that the one who God the Father delights in, everything will be the way that person wants it to be. The thought of there being a new world and someone being in charge of it is pretty intimidating, isn't it? Because what if we don't like it there? But the new world that's being brought, the person in charge is the one who loves broken reeds. Heaven is not some spiritual place where we float around with harps 
like ghosts, you know, haunting people occasionally here. There's this great bit elsewhere, both in the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation, where it says the kings of the earth will bring their treasures into the new creation Jesus is bringing. So what he's saying there is the best bits of this broken world will be redeemed and remade and refashioned to perfection when Jesus remakes. The new world is made up of broken reeds and stuttering candles, but everything that's poor and wrong and bad about them will be redeemed, remade. And it's their very weakness that qualifies them to be there. That's the good thing about the new creation. There will be no strong or proud people ruining it for everybody. The only way to get in is to admit your weakness. And all your mistakes and sins and the scars you carry, they'll all be redeemed to show Jesus' glory. There is a world coming where the one who gives himself for bruised reeds is in charge. And if that's true of the new world, it's also true now. Jesus is making this world like that now, no matter how weak or bruised or broken or hating of yourself you might be. I was reading recently about a woman who was one of the first missionaries Um, actually to India. We have some Indian Christians in our church, so that's a real blessing. She's a missionary to India. When she was young, she had brown eyes and she was desperate to have blue eyes like her sibling, who she thought was more beautiful than her, her blonde hair, blue eyed sibling. And she read in the Bible that if you pray for something, God will give it to you. So she went to bed one night as a child and prayed that God would give her blue eyes and then woke up the next morning and thought, great, blue eyes today, and looked in the mirror And her eyes were still brown. And she, the story of the book is told, going to India, sharing the gospel, setting up these orphanages and missionaries there. And she said, one of the things that enabled me to serve God so perfectly, I was made to do this work in India, was that I sort of had like a complexion that didn't make people suspicious that I was a sort of white saviour. I had olive skin and dark eyes. Now, why I'm telling that story is because this is what Jesus does. He takes the things that you hate about yourself, that you would rather have changed, and he redeems them to do beautiful things with them, to bring justice, to bring beauty. And that's a silly example, really, brown eyes, blue eyes, who cares? But people here, people are carrying heavy things that we hate about ourselves. We've ended up in places we wouldn't have chosen or planned. But it's not just that God overlooks those things. He's like, well, I've forgiven you for that. You can forget about it. He says more. He says, your weakness is your strength. The thing you hate about yourself is the thing I'll use to do something great. That's the world where he's in charge. Your suffering and shame is not just sort of hidden, but it's what allows you to bring beauty, justice, in the truest sense. In the chaos of this, well, you know, let's call it what it is, this undiluted, unmitigated mess that we've made of this creation, 
the servant is bringing a new world. And he's delighted to care for us. And his power is used to move us so that we trust him and we do good. He does it without bullying, without swagger, without thought for his own position. Jesus is bringing a new world. You know, I realize this is hard to believe. (laughs) How could it be this true? I realize people here are probably carrying things I've got no idea about. I do get that. If you are a broken reed or a stuttering flame and you think you can't be meaning Jesus will redeem and use this, well, just look at him, the God who became a weak peasant who didn't raise his voice and was executed for crimes he didn't commit and through that brought the only everlasting kingdom that will ever be. He can do it. You can bring it to him. Now let me tell you, what has all this got to do with the recovering series, uh, series that we're in and sort of period that we're in? I fear we've lost this idea that we bring our weaknesses and Jesus redeems them because we've got very used to hiding. Life has closed down. The smoke from our candle, the bruises that we carry, we've had that all behind closed doors. Church, I think, for some people, is feeling like hard work because it is hard work to come into a community of people and continually pretend. And if that's why you're struggling, and maybe it's actually church people, maybe me getting it wrong and sort of making you feel like we all need to be here to perform better, forget us and recover Jesus. He loves bruised reeds. He loves stuttering flames. Third thing we see about Jesus, third and last, he doesn't get tired. Something like that. You get up on the screen, great. I love the way it says, he will not falter or be... It is unstoppably moving towards the place where the one who loves bruised reeds is in charge. You know, you do get a picture of that, actually, in Jesus as we have him in the Gospels, in his earthly life. It's really amazing that you get halfway through, say, Mark's gospel, which is a biography of Jesus, and Jesus is doing all these amazing things, and people begin to realize, people say, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. It's really amazing. And at that point, he sets his face towards Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be killed, and he doesn't stop going there till the end of the book, and he dies. He is not going to stop pushing us to this new world. It's hard to believe that because this world is such a mess, because the church is often such a mess. But he's not going to get tired on this journey. He's not going to falter bringing the new world of justice. But maybe this is more important, not just the big picture, he's not going to get tired of doing this. You do need to remember, he doesn't get tired of you. Someone once said to me, I find everybody in my life falls into one of two categories, radiators or drains. I was like, please don't tell me which category I'm in. (laughs) They said, there are people whose warmth comes to you and they fill you up and they warm you up. And there's people you can see them coming your direction and you think, how can I politely leave? 
you're going to take everything I've got and more. They're being very honest, and all of us probably have people like that. But I love the picture of Jesus here. No matter how much of a drain you think you might be, his face always lights up to see you. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't think you're going to take more than I've got to give. You know, there's a tone we sometimes take with our children when we have to ask them to do things 27 times. I've experienced that. You're like, can you get dressed? How about getting dressed? What about getting dressed now? Eventually, you take the tone which is like, come on, get dressed. Jesus never takes that tone with us. He isn't discouraged or faltered by our lack of ability to do the things we write we might know we should do. He, he doesn't take that tone. It's why repentance, which is a word with a lot of baggage, turning back to Jesus, it's always joyful. It's always happy. Even though it means acknowledging that you've got things wrong, Jesus is not saying be miserable for a while to really prove it. Jesus says, I'm delighted to have you back. I'm not discouraged. I'm not tired of you. In him, the islands put their hope. What a lovely picture. It's saying the furthest scattered people through all of the world will put their hope in Jesus. Well, why wouldn't they? If he's like this. We need to recover Jesus. We are weak, bruised, used up, tired. Stop looking inside yourself to find strength. Stop, if it's not dangerous to say, trying to be better. Come to Jesus. He and God delight in welcoming people like you. I mean, it is the thing God most loves about Jesus is that Jesus loves you. Not going to do much application. As an aside, I would say this. If this is, none of this is new to you and you think, well, helpful reminder, but I knew Jesus was like this. I do think if you worship Jesus for being like this, if you think is the central truth of the universe, you are going to be someone who would much rather be crushed than crush anyone else. If you think the most praiseworthy thing about Jesus, like God his Father, you think the most praiseworthy thing about Jesus is that he cares for stuttering candles and bruised reeds, if you think that's the center of everything and your heart is moved to that, you'll be someone who'd much rather the pain falls on you than someone else. But I think actually this isn't really calling us to do much except worship Jesus. To, again, worship can sound like a command. Worship Jesus. It just means enjoy. Enjoy his gentle, unfaltering, happy love for you. In the midst of everything going on, maybe that's what you need to recover. We're not stepping out of reality, we're stepping into it. And here's the reality. There is a God in heaven who delights in his son. He delights in his son because his son loves helping you.
That's it. That's what there is out there. Maybe we've forgotten. 